In New York Harbor stands a giant copper statue, 150 feet tall, and it has been mounted on a 150-foot base so that the torch of Lady Liberty, as some call her, is 300 feet above ground and above the surrounding harbor. It was a gift from the French in 1876 to commemorate the 100th anniversary of the Declaration of Independence. It still had to be put together, assembled, was dedicated in 1886. And now for more than 130 years, the Statue of Liberty, the Statue of Freedom, has stood as a symbol in one of the world's most significant cities for freedom, not only in this nation, but worldwide. But have you ever paused to ask, freedom from what? The idea of liberty, the idea of freedom, has taken on a life of its own in the modern world. And it can be very easy to lose track of the context of freedom. Freedom from what? And freedom for what? The founding fathers of the United States had a very particular oppressor in mind when they cried for liberty. English rule. Interesting enough, that was the same oppressor that William Wallace has in mind in the 1995 movie when he cries out, freedom! It's also English rule. And more specifically, the U.S. founders cried for freedom, meaning freedom, of the govern- freedom for the government to be based on the consent of the governed rather than the authority of kings. That's the original Declaration of Freedom. And yet, in the struggle for independence from Britain, the Founding Fathers were not afraid to speak of liberty in grandiose terms, as in the Declaration of Independence, which, let's be honest, was walked back a little 12 years later in the Constitution. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal and that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights. Among these are life, Liberty, what does that mean? In the pursuit of happiness. The sound of liberty in human ears is such a powerful tonic. Sometimes for healing great ills. And other times, it acts like a poison. The cry for freedom can produce both free elections and mob violence. What began with national freedom from foreign rule can quickly devolve into a cry of freedom against the chosen government when it turns out that it's something we don't like. The cry for freedom, unchecked, soon pines for individual liberty outside of any authority. And it's hard to find a better example of this than the 1992 Supreme Court case, Planned Parenthood versus Casey, where Justice Anthony Kennedy wrote this. This is 30 years ago, 30 years. 
At the heart of liberty, he says, is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life, end quote. That is a sweeping, expansive claim about liberty that would have stunned the most liberal of the founding fathers. Yet, as modern as the emphasis on personal liberty may seem, the cry for liberty is far older than modern liberalism and the mobs of the French Revolution and the principal documents of the Founding Fathers. More than 1,700 years before this nation was founded, the Apostle Paul, at the climax of his letter to the Galatians, cries out for liberty, for Christian freedom, that far predates any cries that inform and distort our concept of liberty today. He says in Galatians 5.1, as you heard Josh read, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. This cry for freedom captures the very heart of Paul's letter and the burden of his letter to the Galatians. The first half of the verse, for freedom Christ set us free, is the declaration of freedom. And it anticipates the rest of the letter to come. This freedom is going to be fleshed out in chapter 5, verse 13, through chapter 6, 10. So this is where we're headed in Galatians in our series. What is Christian freedom? And the second half of verse 1, stand firm, therefore. The exhortation to stand firm. That captures the key truths of chapter 2, verse 16, through 4, 7 which is full acceptance with God, justification by faith in Jesus Christ. So the second half of verse 1 leads to verses 2 and 4, and the first half of verse 1 leads to verses 5 and 6, and then the rest of the letter. So there are two distinct emphases in these six verses, and we might call them a freedom from, verse 1b through 4, and a freedom for, verse 1a, and verses 5 and 6. And so our question this morning is, what is Christian freedom? We should not assume that Christian freedom is the same as American freedom. What is Christian freedom that predates American freedom by 1,700 years? And in this passage, there are two very clear parts to Christian freedom, and there's a third aspect that's a little bit more subtle. And because it's more subtle, we probably need to give it some special attention, and we'll do that at the end. So we have three parts here this morning. What is Christian freedom? Number one, it is a freedom from. And I will try to specify for you in just a minute what it is from. This is verses two to four. This is by far our longest point because this is most of the passage up through verse four. Freedom from. Look at verses two to four. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. 
I testify again to everyone who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. So remember, we've seen throughout Galatians that the issue in this letter is what's called justification. That is, how you get right and stay right with God. Remember that vertical focus here. On what grounds and by what means might sinners like us be fully accepted by God and have right standing with him? And Paul's answer in Galatians, as we have seen again and again, is that justification, right standing with God, is by faith alone. Your full acceptance with God, your right standing with God, is one, based on Christ's work, and two, accessed and received through faith. For justification before God, we cannot combine our doing with Christ's doing. And to receive that justification, we cannot combine our doing with our believing. We both get in right relationship with God, and this is important, we stay in right relationship with God by faith alone. So, in verses two to four, Paul issues a succession of three warnings. Because it takes vigilance to distinguish between justification and other realities in the Christian life. The Christian life is not by faith alone. There's all sorts of things to do in the Christian life. Justification is by faith alone. It's important that we defend, that we're vigilant, that we take care. What has to do with justification by faith? Right, right relationship with God, and what is about other things? It can be a danger for those who learn justification by faith for the first time. They really get excited about this pony, and they only ride this pony. But there are other horses in the stable of Christianity, and yet justification is a very important stallion. All the horses. So Paul says, stand firm. In verse 1, freedom, he's going to say in verse 13, is a calling, a strong language. You are called to freedom, verse 13 says. Christian freedom, grounded in justification by faith, is a freedom to be defended. And it is not enough to start by faith and then add works righteousness. And it also takes care to not presume and apply faith alone in improper ways. If a father says to his 11-year-old son, let's just say 11, random number, clean your room. And it would be an inappropriate response for the son to say, I'm justified by faith alone. I don't need to clean my room. Now, if the parent said, clean your room or you cannot be saved, then a humble, wise 11-year-old might say, Dad, I'm justified by faith alone. 
you cannot pressure me to clean my room to earn right standing with God. I clean my room because you're my dad and because we want to have an orderly, obedient house. I'm going to obey you as father, but I'm not obeying you so that I might be saved, so that I might be justified. Very important distinction in the Christian life. And so as Christians who delight in the freedom that we have in Christ through justification by faith. We want to take care. We want to be vigilant in what pressures we put on others and what pressures we allow others to put on us. On what terms? When you counsel or pressure or exhort somebody to do something, is it, is it in terms of justification or counsel? wisdom, or some other relationship in life. And when others pressure us, and justification by faith can serve as a self-interested, self, selfish excuse at times. Somebody else is saying we should do something or asking us to do something, and they're not saying that it's about salvation. They're just asking us to do something in the course of they own the business or they're the leader at the school or whatever relationships we have. They're the parent in relationships of authority in life. They're giving us something to do. And at that point, it's not an issue of right standing before God. We are not being good defenders of justification by faith to over apply it to other areas that serve our own selfishness. So Christian freedom then is freedom from what? And we have seen in this letter again and again that justification by faith frees us from sin, chapter 3, verse 32, from the curse of the law, chapter 3, verse 13. Christ's sacrifice covers our sins and frees us from the guilt of our sins and increasingly from the power of our sins. But the most immediate freedom from in these verses, is circumcision. In verse 2 is the first time in this letter that Paul has mentioned circumcision related to the Galatians. I mean, this is the flashpoint in Galatia because the pressure from the false teachers on the Galatians means that they are already beginning to take on some Jewish festivals Paul says in chapter 4, verse 10. So they are contemplating whether they should take on the law. Do they need the Old Testament law to be in right relationship with God? And circumcision's a flashpoint. It's probably the sort of thing that you don't just do on a whim. You consider that for a while. And Paul's writing to those who are considering this. They're already doing some of the easy stuff, you know, celebrating the festivals, some other things. They're trying it out. But circumcision is going to be a very significant, irreversible thing. And they're contemplating it. And Paul is encouraging them not to do that. Verse 2. Verse 2. If, if, if Paul could only tweet at the Galatians, he would have tweeted verse 2. Verse 2 is his most direct statement what he wants from them. Look. I, Paul... In other words, listen, Galatians, it's me. You know me. I brought the gospel to you. Listen up. I'll shoot you straight. If you accept circumcision, which they're pondering, 
Christ will be of no advantage to you. It's not because circumcision is wrong or damnable in itself. But in this instance, in the situation in Galatia, accepting circumcision means that the Galatians now believe that Christ and faith in him is not enough to be right with God. And so, he says to them, to be circumcised is to rebel against God and Christ. That's the first warning. Second warning, verse three. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he's obligated to keep the whole law. When Paul says keep here, we got keep in the ESV, the word is literally do. It just sounds funny to us. We translate it this way. Do the whole law, he says. In this situation where the old covenant law through circumcision has been made an issue by the false teachers. They made it an issue. An issue of right standing with God. To embrace it is to turn from Christ and his new covenant. They cannot just add circumcision at this point. To turn there is to turn to the whole law. Circumcision represents the whole law. And now that Christ has come, there is no longer a valid sacrificial system under the terms of the first covenant. If you add law, you must do law perfectly, whole law. And you cannot do the old covenant law perfectly. For that matter, you cannot do new covenant commands perfectly either. But in the new covenant, we have Christ. In the new covenant, we have provision for sins. In the new covenant, we have covering for sins. If you confess your sin, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Christ has come. That is no longer true in the first covenant. That is true in the new covenant. That's why we confess our sins here together as part of our service each week. We are assuming you have made mistakes, errors, sins every week, every day, every hour, if we look close enough with the, mic, with the magnifying glass. And so we come, all of us come to confess our sins each week. And there's provision in Jesus. There is no longer provision in the first covenant. A third and final warning then in verse 4. He says, you are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. Now, we have talked several times in this series about how law here throughout Galatians means in particular the Old Testament law, the Mosaic law. We saw that law given in our Exodus study. Law here does not mean law in general, that would be a misapplication of justification by faith to apply it to every law for the Christian life. What we've emphasized is there's this shift in the epochs of history from the old covenant to the new covenant. And that's, that's the presenting issue here in Galatia. It's very significant. 
But this letter is not only about old covenant versus new. A second problem lies behind the problem of the change from old covenant to new. And that is the problem of doing versus believing for right standing with God. Or we might say earning versus grace. That word doing in verse 3 is important. Doing the law. And now in verse 4, grace. You've fallen away from grace. To accept circumcision, Paul says, will be to fall from grace. Because circumcision represents an adding to Christ for justification. And unavoidably introduces law and doing into the grace and faith of being right with God through Christ. What does it mean then very practically to live the Christian life by this grace? Because there are commands in the new covenant. Don't misunderstand this series in Galatians and justification by faith as if there are no commands in the Christian life. Every Sunday we rehearse that we are to teach all nations to observe all that Jesus has commanded. Oh, we have commands. Living the Christian life by grace means that at bottom, at the most fundamental level, we get and stay in right relationship with God by faith alone, based on Christ alone. And as we obey Christ's commands, which we do increasingly from the heart, and as we access God's voice daily in his word and respond to him in prayer, and gather with this body on Sundays to worship together and during the week for fellowship, we do not seek to secure or maintain our standing with God by our doing. But our efforts, our lives, our obedience from faith are means of God's ongoing grace to us, not obligations for justification, but expressions of what we call sanctification. Which leads then to what our freedom is for. I said we'd spend most of our time on that first one, freedom from. Now let's talk about freedom for. This is verses 5 and 6. Remember the first half of verse 1. For freedom, Christ has set us free, is then picked up in verses 5 and 6. Verse 2 was Paul's one direct word of exhortation to the Galatians about freedom from. Freedom from sin, freedom from law, freedom from curse and death, freedom from trying to earn God's acceptance. Now, verses 5 and 6, celebrate for what? Freedom for what? And summarize the whole letter from beginning to end. Note the emphasis on faith here in verses 5 and 6. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. The first question here might be, so what's this waiting for righteousness? What's this hope of righteousness? As if there's some future thing? 
don't we already by faith have right standing with God? What's this future thing? So far in Galatians, the emphasis has been on the past, on Christ's finished work, and on the present, that we are justified now by faith. So what's this future aspect of righteousness? First, we should clarify what the word hope means. Because in English, it sounds far more uncertain in our ears than hope would have to the Galatians in Greek. Hope is deep confidence in this context. In the New, throughout the New Testament, as you're reading the New Testament and the Old Testament, hope is much more solid. It's much deeper confidence in hope. It is confident faith applied to the future. It is not a thin wish like it sounds like in English ears sometimes. And so as deep confidence, hope fits well with the future aspect of our justification when it is indeed by faith. Paul has the final judgment in view now in verse 5. And he does not change his emphasis on faith. Faith in Christ is how we now enjoy full acceptance with God and how we will be found right at the end. We enter by faith. We stay in by faith. And we will be confirmed at the final judgment by faith. It's the same basis, Christ's work, not ours. It's the same instrument, our faith, not our doing. So what hope then remains for the final judgment? If we already have the basis in place and faith is in place, what hope remains? What remains for the final judgment is God's public declaration of our righteousness in Christ by faith for all to know backed up by the real evidence in our life of changes brought about by the Spirit. So what then is this freedom for? Let's get real specific what the freedom is for. Christian freedom, what's it for? Paul says in verse 5, that this is through the Spirit. It's so important. This is the realm in which all the freedom for happens. And it is crucial for our understanding of Christian freedom. This is not able to be factored into American freedom. Because we're talking Christianity. We're talking the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is critical in how we think about Christian freedom and what it's for. Because the Holy Spirit changes us. He changes our hearts. He takes out the old heart of stone. And he puts in a heart of flesh. He gives us new desires. And he goes to work on us. A lifelong sanctifying work to make us new. He frees us to be adopted as sons and daughters. As we've seen in Galatians. And he frees us for the inheritance of all things. So our freedom for includes the things of earth. 
that God has given us to enjoy him in Christ through the Spirit. We are free to enjoy God's good gifts to the full, which means receiving those gifts consciously from him and tracing the gift back to the giver. And there's more. The great New Covenant prophecy in Jeremiah 31 captures so well the freedom from and the freedom for of the Christian life. In Christ, we have freedom from. Jeremiah 31, verse 34. I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more. That is a sweet freedom from. And Jeremiah says, listen to how he casts freedom for. He says, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. This is new desires. This is by the Holy Spirit. He says, and I will be their God and they shall be my people and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord. For they will all know me. From the least to the greatest, declares the Lord. Christian freedom is freedom for knowing God. For being his and having him as ours. Through the Spirit, we are freed for holiness. Freed for true life, free to be sons and daughters in the happiest family imaginable, free to enjoy our inheritance of everything, and free to enjoy Jesus now and forever. Christian freedom is for enjoying finally and forever what we were made to enjoy. Better, who we were made to enjoy, God himself in Jesus Christ. But there's one final reality in this text as we close to understand Christian freedom. And this is Paul's accent at the end of verse 6. Look at verse 6. In Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything related to justification, right? Sinning with God. But only faith. And then Paul says, Working through love. Paul is not saying here that our love justifies us before God. He is saying that the faith that justifies us before God is the kind of faith that works through love. It is a lively faith, not a lazy faith. It's a living faith not a dead faith. It is a spirit-empowered faith, not a self-wrought, self-mustered faith. And this love for other people is a freedom, not a burden. In Christ, we have been freed to love, which means, third and finally, that Christian freedom is not only freedom from and not only freedom for, but Christian freedom is a freedom with. 
Jump down to verse 13. You were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Your old heart, before the Holy Spirit changed you. But through love, serve one another. Justification by faith frees us. Frees us to love others. It frees us from the burden of being preoccupied with our own right standing before God. It frees us from being fixated on our status and our deeds. It liberates us then to love others, to give attention to their needs, to take the initiative and expend the effort to meet their needs. And not only is Christian freedom for loving others, it's for that, it's for loving others, but it is a freedom with others. This is the subtle point in the text. We are not alone in Christian freedom. Christian freedom doesn't have a dispersing, individualizing effect. Verse one, for freedom Christ set us free. Verse 5, we. Verse 6, love, meaning love others. Verse 13, through love, serve one another. And we're going to see in the coming weeks, verse 15, one another, twice. Verse 26, one another, two more times. Chapter 6, verse 10, especially those who are of the household of faith. Christian freedom is a freedom together. It is not the kind of liberty that moves us away from each other to protect our rights and guard our little packages of freedom. But it is a freedom together, a freedom with, a freedom that is greater and more enjoyable with others. In Christ, we are freed to serve others, free to bless others, free to love others, freed from self-focus, from selfishness, from self-justification. We are free to make the happy choice to forego our own personal rights at times for the sake of love. That's what Paul does, 1 Corinthians 9 and 10. Though I am free of all, he says, I have made myself a servant to all. And the freedom of joy together through love is a greater freedom than self-focus. The sweetest, most enjoyable freedom is not freedom alone, but freedom together, freedom with. And it is often enjoyed by denying ourselves some personal rights or lesser freedoms for the sake of others and enjoying the greater freedoms and the greater joys of life together. Freedom with is far greater freedom than freedom solo. And so we come to the table together. This is a table of both liberty and union. Two principles that often feel in tension. 
in our lives. Liberty and union. Liberty in that we have been set free from sin and from death and from hell and from doing, earning our right standing with God. We've been set free and we enjoy that here. And we have been set free for life, true life, in the spirit, for the joy of holiness and the joy of loving others. And we've been set free together. And so there is unity and liberty together at this table. It's what we call it communion. Because we draw near, not away from Christ and, from, and with each other when we come to this table.